this is David Brickner. He is... Uh, many of us know David. He's been here at Shema many times, and we have been blessed by his teaching ministry, and we've been blessed by the ministry of Jews for Jesus, uh, which David leads. So, David, so good to have you. Thank this, you, Rabbi uh, Lauren. You're welcome. The Shabbat after Thanksgiving. It's great to be here, and thank you for your friendship and support of Jews for Jesus. Usually I'm here like once a year, but we've kind of broken with that tradition. I'm, this is my second time here. Uh, and uh, of course, Thanksgiving is a big draw to be with my family. This time I had a chance to bring my wife, Sabra, who's sitting right here, Yay, here in Sabra. the front. So, so glad to have her. And I also have my two daughters, Ilana and Sivan, who are sitting on that side and two thirds of the way back. So. So thanks for affording me the opportunity to be with Mishpacha. Uh, we had a very nice uh, gathering for uh, Thanksgiving at our house, uh, David and his family, Martha's and David's sister Beth and um, her family, their family. So it was a great time. So, um, so good to have you, David. Uh, let's turn our attention to the word of God. Uh, Psalm 84 from strength to strength. David, you could have chosen anything to talk about this morning. Why did you choose Psalm 84 to discuss? Well, you might remember last time I was here in the spring, I talked about Jubilee because Jews for Jesus was celebrating its 50th anniversary. And so we were having a big Jubilee outreach that happened and uh, concluded in uh, September. And uh, also in September, I turned 65. Wow, who would have believed it? But uh, so I've been thinking a lot about transition in, uh, in Jews for Jesus. And actually in part of my contemplating this season, uh, read a book by Albert Brooks, uh, former president of the Heritage Foundation, who wrote... Uh, he called it strength to strength, and in it he postulated the idea that as you grow older, you go from using your liquid intelligence to, as you age, crystallized intelligence. And those two ideas are what you want to try in transition to move from. Some people just get stuck in one and fail to make that transition to the other. And so as I begin to think about my role in Jews for Jesus, I've been the CEO now for 28 years. Uh, I thought it would be a good idea to think about this. And, and I knew that that phrase that Albert Brooks used for his book, From Strength, Strength to Strength, that was a biblical phrase. And this is not a Christian book. Nevertheless, I said, let's go find out what the Bible has to say about strength to strength. And where it is found is in Psalm 84. And I have delighted in finding out how significant Psalm 84 is. For example, it's used three different times in our synagogue liturgy for the Jewish people. It's used in the Ashrei, it's mentioned in the Mincha and the Shachrit services. So it's a central psalm. And, and I also found a very interesting quote from Ch uh, Charles Spurgeon, who said, 
Psalm 84 is the pearl of psalms. If the 23rd is the most popular, the 103rd the most joyful, the 119th the most deeply experiential, the 51st the most plaintive, this is one of the most sweet of the psalms of peace. I like that. All right. We're breaking this down into three parts from strength to strength. The first is the strength of his presence. For the choir director, a psalm of the descendants of Korach. I know it says Korah in most of your Bibles, but it's Korach. Don't look at me when you say that. (laughs) (laughs) To be accompanied by a stringed instrument. So we got some music going on along with beautiful words. David, who were the descendants of Korach? What's significant about them? Any lessons for us knowing that they wrote this psalm? Well, Rabbi Lauren, in discussing this beforehand, we've discovered a disagreement between us as to who the sons of Korach might be. I believe that they are, as you, Levites. But I believe they are rather anonymous sons of Korah, who certainly served the Lord in his temple, were very familiar with the liturgy of the temple, and led people in worship. But they were not the same sons of Korah that are mentioned earlier in the Torah, which you believe they are. So uh, Korach is the man who was a Levite who opposed Moses, led this rebellion against Moses in the wilderness, uh, stirred up many of the leaders of Israel against Moses. The Lord was very displeased with that. Um, And um, the earth basically opened up, swallowed them, and ended that rebellion. So uh, that's where Korach is elsewhere mentioned in the Bible. So I think it is a possibility that somehow um, grandchildren of Korach, great-grandchildren maybe, could have escaped and um, continued. Rabbi Glenn is shaking his head in pain, wincing. (laughs) So... uh, if that's the case, and I'm, I'm just saying if, uh, then this is a great story of family redemption. Uh, Korach is, you know, this wicked man, this rebel rebelling against Moses and God. But if these are somehow descendants of Korach, then it's a, a story of family redemption that God can turn around bad families and bring something very good Uh, from a bad family situation. I think that that is a beautiful application, Rabbi Lauren, because the scriptures teach no longer shall it be said that fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but each will die for their own sin. And so if that were true, then we can rejoice that we're not captivated by the sins of our fathers, by the bad uh, patterns of our family. We can be freed from that and given new life in Messiah to live for his glory and no longer 
bound by the sins of our family past. Amen. And regardless um, who these sons of Korach were, these were people, uh, religious leaders who loved the Lord, served in the temple, wrote this psalm and other psalms. You were mentioning that uh, other than David, uh, the sons of Korach wrote... um, They were the most prolific, even more than Solomon, in terms of the numbers of psalms. I forget the number right now, but they... Uh, they definitely were used of the Lord to write many of Israel's worship tunes. Okay, verse 1. First section, strength of his presence. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts, Lord of heaven's armies. I long, yes, I faint with longing to enter the courts of the Lord. With my whole being, body and soul, I will shout joyfully, to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow builds her nest and raises her young at a place near your altar. O Lord of hosts, Lord of heaven's armies, my King and my God, what joy for those who can live in your house, always singing your praises. Selah. Interlude, we think. David, why did the author of this psalm primarily refer to God as Adonai Tzivaot, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's armies? You know, we sang about that earlier, and uh, we don't often think about uh, armies uh, as being a positive thing, but on army was the strength of the king. And it was an awesome thing to see an army gathered for battle. And when we think of God being the Lord of armies, we're instructed through that to imagine God in his awesome power, in his holy strength, uh, and the invitation to God's holy dwelling is one not of casualness, but of awesomeness, that we're entering the presence of the Holy One, the Lord of armies. How lovely is your dwelling place. Uh, what was God's dwelling, dwelling place, and why was it so beautiful? Why was it so lovely in the eyes of the psalmist? Well, it's interesting. Beit Hamikdash, the temple in Jerusalem, is the dwelling place of Uh, the Lord of hosts. And in the psalmist's understanding, this is a psalm focused on that place. There's a a passion. We see these words in these first four verses. My soul longs, faints, my flesh cry out. There's this sense in which it's a longing for his presence. And that's why we, we talk about this first section being you know, the strength of his presence. When you're in the presence of Lord of the Lord, you can go anywhere. It doesn't matter what forces are arrayed against you, what problems you may be having, but there is a tremendous strength when we're in God's awesome presence. And so the psalmist is telling us how we should enter. First of all, with awe, because he is an, a Lord of armies. But secondly, with a sense of longing, with joy, 
Uh, you know, we often, uh, and these words, by the way, kind of are often used to express our appreciation for food, you know, My, like, uh, like Jacob and Esau, you know, Esau's flesh was crying out for some of that porridge that Jacob had made. And I don't know, you've been hungry before and really had that sense of your stomach's growling. You know, you just, oh man, you just can't wait to get out of services and go to Chick-fil-A or something like that. <laughs> but God says that's the, that's the passion with which we're supposed to come to his presence. So it's a good thing to have a meal beforehand so your stomach's not rumbling and you can focus on really cultivating that sense of longing for being in his presence and enjoying his word. I appreciated the uh, the prayer and the instruction of God's word that we received from the readings today. And, and that God wants us to long for that, to cultivate a longing for that, because when we have it, then we enjoy the strength of his presence. Passion for God, passion for the word of God, passion for um, the Lord's presence. I love the description of the sparrows and swallows. These are little birds, right? They're not eagles. They're not hawks. They're not owls, uh, egrets. I love the description of the sparrows and swallows building their nests and raising their young in the courtyard of the temple where the bronze altar was, uh, the place of sacrifice. Uh, Dave, what is, what is that teaching? You know, this is a beautiful picture, the little birds, uh, sparrows, and swallows building their nests in the outer courtyard close to the altar. Yeah. Sparrows are emblematic of really the most insignificant of all of the birds. You mentioned the eagle and all these other more majestic birds, but the wonderful thing is that this seemingly insignificant bird is also welcomed in God's presence. How much more you and I to be welcomed in the presence of the Lord. We matter. We're significant. Yeshua himself said, a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from the Lord's taking. How much more? How much more does he take care of you? Does he, he even knows the number of hairs on your head? And for some of us, that's more and less. But... <laughs> The number is the most important thing. And so God is telling us, the psalmist is telling us, look, even insignificant little sparrows are welcomed into God's presence, and so are we. So this was written in the times of the Sinai Covenant. You know, there was the temple in Jerusalem served by a holy priesthood, holy sacrifices in the holy city. The presence of the holy God was manifested in the temple. Uh, but we're not living under the Sinai covenant. The temple was destroyed uh, twice, 586 B.C., 70 A.D. Um, what is God's dwelling place today? What is God's temple today? Well, first of all, there's a community, a kehilah, in which God dwells. He dwells in the midst of his people who are praising his name. And so when we gather together, uh, Yeshua even said, where two or more 
are gathered in my name. There I am in the midst of you. So it's important for the, the fellowship uh, of believers to gather together and do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the custom of some, more than just a few, especially since COVID, right? As is the custom of some, but all the more as you see the day approaching. And aren't we seeing the day approaching. We're living in a world that is full of conflict and turmoil, and people tend to withdraw from community. We need it all that much more, the author of Hebrews says. So when you have a tendency to say, "Eh, I'm going to turn over and get a few more hours of sleep, remember, the blessing of God is in his presence with his people. But more than that, because of Yeshua and the coming of the Holy Spirit, he now indwells us right? And so we are the temple. We'll talk about this, I guess, a little bit more. But the amazing thing is that now you can carry the presence of God with you wherever you go. And I have to tell you, I love being in God's presence uh, with his people. But one of the most, and some of the most spectacular experiences I've had in the presence of the Lord have been when I've put on my backpack and gone up into the mountains, the Sierra Mountains. I love to go several times a year and just to be in that spectacular creation of God. Uh, You know, buildings are made with hands, but the world is made by the hands of the Lord. And when you can get out and be, take a walk in the woods or by a river or something like that, and just take some time to pray. You bring the presence of the Lord with you, and you can get, gain strength uh, from being with him, even when you're just by yourself. The psalmist, the son, the son of Korach, had passion to be in the Lord's house. He thought it was so beautiful. He had passion, desire uh, to be close to the place where the living God manifested his presence on earth. Today, the temple, the Lord's house, his dwelling place, is Messiah's community. It's us. God lives in us. So my question is, do we have that kind of passion, desire, hunger, thirst for God's dwelling place today? Messiah's community. Some of us do, some of us don't. We don't have that passion. But even if you don't have that passion, what I'm telling you is discipline yourself to come to the gathering of the Lord's people where he lives anyway. Uh, If you don't have passion for it, if you don't have joy in doing that, and, you know, the psalmist is talking about joy coming from being in the presence of God uh, in God's temple. If you don't have the passion, if you don't have the desire, if you don't have the joy, do it anyway. Be obedient. Do it because it's the right thing. The passion and the joy will follow the act of obedience. Obedience often comes first. Passion, desire, and joy comes later. One other thing that kills passion and joy to be in the, you know, close to God, 
and properly connected to God's people is sin. Sin is a passion killer. Sin is a joy killer. Do everything you can to get that sin, that disobedience, those wicked habits out of your life. David, what joy for those who can live in your house, always singing your praises. People did not actually live in the temple. So in what sense uh, is the psalmist saying, what joy for those who can live in your house, always singing your praises? Well, the Levites spent a great deal of time. The sons of Korah were uh, pretty much, uh, when they were in their rotation, living there, they would sleep elsewhere, but they'd come and they'd serve. And, and they found that to be the best they could imagine. And so I think that, um, you know, it's an expression of intention, intentionality. You know, they, nobody, uh, you know, set up uh, tents and lived in the Beit Hamikdash in Jerusalem, but they longed to be there. And in fact, uh, you know, there were three times a year, you'll remember, where uh, all the men were required to go up to Jerusalem to worship in the temple at Pesach, at... Uh, um, Pentecost and at uh, Tabernacles. And so this was really the rhythm of life in Israel. It was what our pattern of existence was. So if you weren't there, you were thinking about there, or you were thinking about the next time you were going to be there and what it would take to get there. So there was a whole sensibility in which the unity, the identity of the people uh, was connected to being there. So even if they weren't there 24-7, it was constantly part of the rhythm of their lives. So how can we live in God's house today? We discipline ourselves to be in his presence, whether it be through the regular assembly of what, uh, ourselves together, as the author of Hebrews said, that we should do all the more, as we see the day approaching, we discipline ourselves to be outside of just once a week, to be with others who we can enjoy fellowship with and uh, build that sense of community, a small group, a Bible study, something outside of just the once a week uh, is a good pattern. And of course, for individuals, that daily devotional, the time in the word, time in prayer, uh, just to have that as part of our lives, uh, part of the rhythm of our lives, uh, strengthens us and helps us to sense his presence, even when we're going through some of the most difficult times. All right, so that was the first section, strength of his presence. The next section, strength for the journey. Verse 5, what joy for those whose strength comes from the Lord who have set their minds on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. When they walk through the Valley of Weeping, uh, Valley of Baca, it will become a place of refreshing springs. The autumn rains will clothe it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. They will continue to grow stronger, and each of them will appear before God in Jerusalem. So, Dave, what is this? The, what is the 
walking through the valley of weeping. Talk to us about that. Well, I think it's a wonderful transition from what we were just talking about because, you know, three times a year we made this journey. And so that symbolized what I think the author is thinking about right now. The, the sons of Korach are remembering, you know, we need to make our way to the temple. And sometimes that's a challenging time. Life is a journey, right? We all have said that. We know that it is. And it's filled with difficulty. Uh, you know, the, the roads uh, to Jerusalem were not always uh, easy roads. And so the challenge of going uh, on that road to the temple, uh, we, the, the, the psalmist said, you know what? Our strength is not just in a place. Our strength is in a person. Blessed is he, the section starts out, whose strength is what? In the temple where we're going? No, whose strength is in the Lord. Do we draw our strength from the Lord? Because sometimes we're in difficult places. Sometimes our life and the journey of our life is fraught with pain, with difficulty, with weeping, with challenge. And if we are building our strength on the circumstances of our lives, we're going to be weak. But if we really want to have strength from the Lord on the journey of life, if we want to go from strength to strength, then we rely, we trust wholly in him and not in our circumstances. Think about a journey. Think about, let's say, a walk or a run. Uh, normally you start out strong and what happens? You get tired, <laughs> you get weaker, you have to stop, sit down, refresh yourself. But when our strength is in the Lord, not our circumstances, not ourselves, which we're most apt to, to rely upon, but our strength is in the Lord, we don't go from strength to weakness, we go from strength to strength. And that is the journey of life. And and I think the wonderful thing about this weeping, this valley, this Bakas the, is the verb, I think, uh, but it's a noun Mountain. in this, uh, which is often sometimes referred referring to a kind of a bush or a shrub that grows in an arid part of the world. In other words, there's a dry and barren time. You may be in it right now. And if you're not, be patient. It's on its way. <laughs> it's part of life. But you know what happens? It's not just that we barely make it through. It's not just that we have a time that we can get through that just by hook or by crook, by the, by the skin of our teeth or whatever, but there's a transformation that occurs. That valley of barrenness and weeping becomes refreshing, a place of refreshing where joy. How many times have you found that the most difficult thing in your life becomes a season of greatest growth and strength. And you draw from those difficult times, those weeping moments, the strength to go even more. And, and because of that, God meeting you in that difficult place, you're then able to convey strength to others. That's what God wants to do. He doesn't just want us to, to make it through the difficulty. He wants to transform that difficulty into a season of refreshing. So we go from strength to strength. Love that. Uh, this is something you probably won't hear in most prosperity churches, the way of suffering, patient endurance, the way of the cross, not just a New Testament concept, 
but the Valley of Weak being the Valley of Baca was known to the people of God all along the centuries. Uh, patient endurance through suffering, getting closer to God when you're going through the Valley of Weeping is the way to go from strength to strength to strength. Next section, strength of the Savior, the final section starting with verse 8. O Lord God of hosts, Adonai Tzivaod, Lord God of heaven's armies, hear my prayer. Listen, O God of Jacob. O God, look with favor upon the king, our shield. Show favor to the one you have anointed. A single day in your courts is better than a thousand anywhere else. I'd rather be a gatekeeper in the house of my God than live the good life in the homes of the wicked. For the Lord God is our sun and our shield. He gives us grace and glory. The Lord will withhold no good thing from those who do what is right. O Lord of hosts, Lord of heaven's armies, what joy for those who trust in you. David, this section starts off for, with a prayer for the king of Israel. Why? Why do you think? Well, the king was the one to, from whom the people expected to receive the blessings. If the king was walking in obedience to the Lord, the blessings of the Lord rested on the king and on the kingdom. When the king strayed, which as we know from Israel's history, they often did, then judgment would come not just on the king, but on the whole community. And so uh, the king was, if you will, a, a foretaste of what the true longing of every human being should be, and that is for the true anointed one, that Moshiach, the anointed one, the Messiah. So David uh, had a greater son, Yeshua. Uh, and all of the kings after him were held up to a standard that they could never meet because ultimately the hope that David was not even able to live up to was fully realized in David's greater son, King Messiah. So when there's a prayer for the king, there's ultimately an anticipation of the fulfillment in the Messiah, who the sons of Korach are, were waiting for and whom we now have welcomed into our lives. And so we pray for the Messiah because we receive the blessings of the strength of the Lord through him. The king that brought that blessing to the nation before Yeshua's coming is now our King Messiah, through whom all of the blessings of God are mediated to us. A single day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a gatekeeper in the house of my God than live the good life in the homes of the wicked. Thoughts? <laughs> Yeah, you know, Spurgeon said of this idea, God's worst is better than the devil's best. So I don't know what the benefits of being a gatekeeper, a doorkeeper, 
uh, are to you. But what, what the psalmist is saying is, you know, I get to be a Levite. I get to burn incense. I get to sing. I get to do all these other things. But if you offered me a palace uh, somewhere else, I'd rather be a doorkeeper. <laughs> this is the place to be. This is where it's happening. This is where the strength of God is because this is where the Messiah promises to be. And he, you know, a greater one uh, than the temple is in our midst, in Yeshua. Uh, and these ideas are expressed in other places in the scriptures. So the psalmist said, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire but you. Rav Shaul, the apostle Paul said, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Messiah Yeshua as my Lord. He is the mediator of all of the blessings of God. Why does the Lord give grace, glory, and withhold no good thing from those who do what is right? Thoughts? I love that phrase, grace and glory. And whenever you see them together, they are the, uh, the heart of what we should seek. First of all, grace, we need it. God's riches at Christ's expense unmerited favor, not receiving what we deserve, but receiving more than we could ever imagine. That's grace. And what is the purpose of receiving grace? It's glory, not our own, but God. God tells us that he himself is jealous. He's jealous for his glory. And so maybe you thought that it wasn't a good thing to be jealous of others, but where there is one jealousy that God approves of, and that is if we join him in being jealous for his glory, we receive his grace, and then we bring him glory. And we can only do that because of the strength of Messiah in us. He is our sun and shield. He is the means by which we can live a life that goes from strength to strength. Psalm ends with what joy for those who trust in you. Joy and trust are connected. Trusting God, knowing God, relying on him, believing in him, being loyal to him. You're not very happy. You don't have much joy in your life. You're probably not trusting him the way you should, relying on him, being loyal to him, the way you should. David, any final thoughts? A couple. First of all, uh, the idea of being a sun and a shield. Uh, think about that, and think about the, the resources that that brings to our lives. He's a sun for the happy days, and he's a shield for the dangerous days. He's here for all of our days, and all we need to do is draw upon our him for our resources. There's a, a sense in which the metaphor of the dwelling place of God is now taken in the Brit Hadashah and applied 
to our lives on a daily basis. And Peter, uh, and with this I conclude, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, he says, you are coming to Messiah, who is the living cornerstone of the Lord's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for honor and glory. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests, sons and daughters of Korah. <laughs> Through the mediation of Messiah Yeshua, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you, David. That was great. Really enjoyed that.